Well, the greatest job on earth is the series. The greatest job on earth sounds kind of audacious. But I think I know what the greatest job on earth is. And I think you're going to understand it even better, I hope, at the end of this sermon series. And what we started two weeks ago is the sermon in all indecision. And we're going to finish that up, that particular sermon from Luke 14 today. And I'm going to start with Andrew Murray. I love Andrew Murray. If you've not read any of the devotionals from Andrew Murray, can I just encourage you? Most of them are free. They're on the internet. You can find them. You're going to absolutely be blessed by them because he writes this in one of his, in one of his devotionals. Here it is. Now you're ready. You got to really give me your minds. I want you to take it in, let it bounce around a little bit, and let's see what it what it leaves in our minds. Here it is. God is ready to assume full responsibility for the life wholly yielded for him. Now, did you hear that? You're seeing it on the screen. I'm going to say it again. Ready? I'm going to get that pinball moving in your in your mind a little bit. This is setting the framework for the sermon. God is ready to assume full responsibility. For the life wholly yielded to him. But so many Christians are okay. And this might be you, by the way. So many Christians are okay with following Jesus part way. Believing that it's acceptable to Jesus. He's okay with this. Well, let me ask you a couple questions, all right? Now, this is just interaction. We're just having a little friendly conversation before we really get rolling in this text. What parent is okay with partial obedience of their children? I mean, moms and dads, really, honestly, have you ever asked your children to do something, they've done it halfway or with a little bit of effort, and you were overjoyed about it? What employer is satisfied with getting a worker's half-hearted effort? What coach could possibly be happy with a player who competes at 50% effort? See, the Bible calls us to wholehearted living. Here it is from Jesus himself. You shall love the Lord your God. You hear that? The Lord, karios in the Greek, your master. Remember how we started out? Remember what uh, we heard from Forsyth? It is the duty of every soul to not first find its freedom, but to find its master. Well, here we go. You shall love the Lord, the master, your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. That's wholehearted living. This is what Jesus says we ought to do. Can you imagine Jesus preaching that? Now look at me for a second. And saying words like this. You shall love the Lord your God with a bunch of your heart. Or with 63.8% of your heart. No, it's with all. Remember my professor at Liberty University? I told you this two weeks ago. All means all and what? That's all that all means. Let's say it together. All means all and that's all that all means. I think I, think I said that basically by myself. Let's try it again. All means all, and that's all that all means. That's the Greek word pass. That's what the word all is. It means everything, totally, nothing left. So you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, and with all your soul, and with all your mind. And this is why Abraham Kuyper once proclaimed, he's speaking to a university audience in Amsterdam. Not the most godly place on the planet. 
And he says these words. There is not one square inch of the entire creation about which Jesus Christ does not cry out, this is mine, this belongs to me. That includes you, my friend, and it includes me. We are his. The first duty of every soul is not to find its freedom, but to find its master. And our master is Jesus Christ. Amen? But boy, is that difficult. The greatest job of, on earth is to make disciples who know how to make disciples. That's it. And the aim of grace, the aim of grace, so the trajectory, the goal of grace is to fill our hearts with a desire to yield fully to Jesus in every single part of our lives, loving him more than we love any other person. And Jesus tells us, well, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them, teaching them all he commanded. Grace is aiming to get us on board, get us in the job, and get us functioning. And by the way, remember, that's the mission of every Christian. That's the mission of every every church. You don't have a different mission than I have. Now, we might do it uniquely in our own abilities, in our, our own context, but your mission is my mission. The mission of every church, every Christian, it's the goal and it's the aim of the gospel. It's to go and make disciples of all nations. That there would be from every single people group, by the way, 11,000 people groups on this planet, 6,000 of them have never ever heard the gospel. 6,000 of them don't know the good news of Jesus Christ. It's our job to get the word of God and the gospel to them. And we heard that last week, by the way, if you were here, and I thank Bob Briggs very, very much. I heard his sermon. I thought he did an excellent job. He showed us uh, last week that the call to get that gospel is both here in the east end of the Lehigh Valley and it's all around the world. And we're moving as a church to the Democratic Republic of the Congo. I don't mean that we're moving our church over there. By the way, would you go if we did? You know what it's like preaching to catatonic people? (laughs) I don't know if you'd go, but listen, we're moving as a church to bring the gospel to the Dungu village of the DRC. That's going to be exciting. You're going to hear a lot more about that. But remember, three weeks ago, we watched Jesus do this, make disciples. He did it with four men, Peter, Andrew, James, and John. He said these words, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. We learned that following Christ demands an all-in commitment. We need to Love Jesus more than we love our families, our friends, even our own lives. So discipleship requires Jesus to be our greatest priority. Now all I'm doing so far is just getting you a reminder of what we've covered in this sermon series. We're going to jump into today's in about another 35 seconds. And we're back already. Now you ready? Here's what I just said. Discipleship requires Jesus to be our greatest priority. And we're back already to how we began today's message. Half-hearted following is not what Christ desires and his grace is calling us to give him everything. Now here we go. Ready? We're just gonna, we're gonna jump into this and we are gonna go crazy through this passage. But before we do that, I gotta ask you a question. Are you holding anything back from Jesus? 
I think almost every one of us probably in utter honesty would say yes. Now listen, Jesus wants everything. And you will find your greatest life when you give it to him. So let's return to Luke chapter 14. Let's finish the passage we started. We're going to begin at verse 27. So can you look there with me? And here's what it says. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So here's number one we learned two weeks ago. Discipleship requires Jesus to be our greatest priority. Here we go today. Discipleship requires a person to bear their own cross, to deny themselves at all times. I don't think I could adequately. In fact, let me just, let me just change that. I know for a fact I cannot possibly adequately explain the shock that had to go through that great crowd when Jesus said those words. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Listen, the cross was a hideous, fearsome death penalty. For rebels, traitors, criminals, and slaves. He is, in effect, saying, unless you bring your electric chair, unless you bring the gun, unless you bring the cross with you and bear it everywhere you go in life, you're not going to be able to be my disciple. That is revulsive. That is shocking. Now, let me get you... My job is to get you into... The days when Jesus was alive. He's speaking to a first century audience. Now, ready? You got your tunic on, got your cloak, got your sandals, feel that dusty ground below you and that dry, arid, beautiful air in that countryside and upper Galilee region. That's where he is. Now, here's what's going through your heart you've seen people crucified. This is not an uncommon occurrence. You've seen somebody carrying their cross. And you know that when you see a man, they did not crucify women. You know that when they, when you see a man carrying his own cross, you were seeing a man walking his way to his own death. You feel that in you. You feel remorse. I mean, it's mixed because they only crucified slaves and criminals and rebels. So, you know, part part of you is like, that person must have done something really bad. But there's another part of you that says, it's the worst way to die. I mean, the Romans did not invent crucifixion. They perfected it. The Persians invented crucifixion. The Romans just made it the best it could possibly be as a excruciating, that's crucifixion, that's the Latin for it, an excruciating death. And it often took days to die on a cross. And the victim was lifted up naked, either tied to the cross or nailed to the cross. And they would become a spectacle for everybody to see that if you defy Rome's will, this is what's going to happen to you. Do you see why Rome did this? They were making it so that nobody would ever rebel against their might again. And to increase this message, you know what they did? They made the victim carry the patibulum. The patibulum was a 75 to 100 pound crossbeam. They would tie it to your shoulders, tie your hands 
to it, and you had to carry it from your flogging site where they whipped you to the execution site where they put the base, the vertical post, they would nail it to that, tie it to that, and then they would lift the whole thing to come thudding down into the ground, which they would anchor with rocks. Unless you bear your cross, unless you carry that cross beam on your way to your own death, you cannot be my disciple. And the crowd has got to be shocked. You know, there's people that think that any suffering, physical disabilities, financial loss, car repairs, miserable marriages, that's their cross to bear. Listen, that's a difficulty in life, but that's not cross-bearing. Did you hear that? You've got to never use that again. It's because you've got a difficulty in life, and my heart goes out to you as we prayed earlier to open up this service. We've got a lot of people struggling in this church. But those are difficulties, those are trials, those are sufferings. That's not cross-bearing. Well, then you've got others who think that their temper or their battle with an addiction... Or a battle with sin is their cross to bear. That's, that's not the cross either. Those are sin struggles. What it means to bear his own cross is to accept all the sacrifice, all the suffering, all the persecution that you're ever going to experience when you wholeheartedly follow Jesus. Well, it could be, as we've had in our church, you get passed over for a promotion at work. We've had that happen in our church because this person's preaching Christ. We have a person in our church who was doing a Bible study at lunch at their, at their lunch break with about eight to ten other guys and the, his boss actively tried to fire him for three years. Listen, to bear your own cross is to experience all of the suffering that is associated with following hard with everything you've got after Jesus. That's cross-bearing. It's to empty yourself of all the rights you think you have. By the way, listen. When Rome would nail you to a cross, the unmistakably clear message was this. You are utterly without rights. We have all the rights. So to bear your own cross is to empty yourself of any rights you think you have. It is to kill your selfish motives that defy God. It's to learn to become obedient to the call of Christ, even if it's going to cost you your life. I was talking to a lady in our church who I absolutely love. She's awesome. Known her for years and years and years. Brought her children up through our youth ministry. I was telling her about the Restoring Hope Ministries that's going to be beginning over in the DRC, and her words were these, I won't go over there, it's too dangerous. And my words to her were, were these, if God calls you, you got to go. Listen, to bear your own crosses, to not tell God, this is what I will do and this is what I won't do. It's to utterly give up your right to say, God, what is it you want me to do? And I will follow that with 100% of my heart. See, first, Jesus told them 
That to be his disciple, you got to love him more than all other loves. you got to make him the greatest priority in your life. Now, he says, if you're going to be his disciple, you've got to renounce all rights to your own life. you got to be willing to die if necessary for the sake of faithfulness to him. Look what he says again. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, listen, there are people who have tried to spin this in every direction they possibly can to come out from under the weight of what Jesus preached. There's no wiggle room. There's no way out. There's no way to spin it. He's being utterly clear. He's not preaching in vague generalities. He's being extremely clear using metaphors and symbols that the people knew. There's not a two-tier group. This is how they explain it. There's not a two-tier group of Christians. There's followers and then there's disciples. So if you're just a follower, you're just a Christian, then you're not being called to bear your own cross. That's how they try to get out from underneath the weight of this. There's no such thing. And even if there were a two-tier, like a minor league and a major league, kind of what it sounds like, Even if there was something like that, Jesus speaks to both groups. Come after me. It's the language of a follower. That's what it means to follow, literally in the Greek. It means to come out from your own path and to step on the path behind Jesus. So even if he is speaking to both, uh, you know, to the followers, he's still telling them, you got to bear your own cross. You gotta step in line behind me, he's saying. You gotta die to yourself and live for me. And that is the crux of his point. Because unless I'm willing, unless Tim Ackley is willing to die to his own self, his own self-will, my desire to control, my need to manage my own life, my natural bent to get my own glory, unless I'm willing to crucify that, then I will never be able to fully and truly live for Christ. That just makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, how can you live for the glory of Jesus when you're competing for your own glory? How can you obey God when you're only willing to do what is comfortable for you? In order to help this great crowd calculate the cost of following him, Jesus now gives two examples. Let's look at them. Verse 28, for which of you desiring to build the tower does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, this man began to build and was not able to finish. Now, who builds a tower? When's the last time you went in your backyard and built a tower? Well, for most of us, not very recent. Towers were built to watch over a field. Towers were built along the walls to watch over a city. Now listen, towers were built in the middle of almost every single vineyard in Israel. In fact, when you read the Old Testament, every t- almost every time you read about a vineyard, you read about its tower, and often it's in the middle of the vineyard. It's built to protect the vineyard from those who would steal its grapes and, listen, from foxes. Foxes were the smallest pest, the most dangerous enemy of a vineyard. They loved the little purple blossoms that would one day become a fully mature grape. But if you eat the blossoms, which foxes do, then there can possibly be no grapes 
So they would get in those wa- those watchtowers and they would shoot the foxes with arrows. They would protect their vineyard. You know, a vineyard was so important that a man, it was considered a curse if a man died in war before he could enjoy the fruit of his vineyard that he planted. In Israel, a vineyard was everything. So towers were built and often enemies, they would attack, they would attack by burning fields or actually sowing tares, which were weeds in the middle of the wheat, which would ruin the harvest. And biblical history talks about towers all the time. So here's a guy that's building a tower. You know what else the Bible talks about a lot? Two things, honor and shame all through the Bible. Honor and shame were huge for Israel. And so here we go. This is a guy that's beginning to build the tower. And Jesus says, listen, before you even begin to build, you've got to look at the the cost. You've got to look at your resources. Because if you're not able to build and finish that tower, then everybody's going to mock you and you're going to suffer shame. So count the cost well. You know what's cool about Jesus? And let me just back up just real, real quick. He just said this, unless you bear your cross, you cannot possibly be my disciple. And he says, let me help you understand how to do that. Take a guy who's going to build a tower, and he better stop first before he builds, and you better calculate how much is it going to cost, how much do I have, can I complete it? If not, I'm going to suffer shame and humiliation, because life in Israel was lived publicly. And then he gives no high-speed disclaimers like you hear after those car dealer commercials on the radio. You know, those ones that go at like 78 RPM. He didn't get them in the door. Now, listen, he's preaching to a great crowd, possibly 10 to 20,000 people. And he's not trying to get them saved and then tell them about what it means to be his disciple. He's telling them what it means to be his disciple before they get saved. Listen, don't commit to being my disciple until you fully understand what I'm going to demand. He always explained up front. What his terms were, three times, unless, dot, 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 you cannot be my disciple. Three times in that passage. He gives this great crowd a warning to not be like those who begin something but never finish. I like John Stott. He wrote this in his book, Basic Christianity. He wrote these words. The Christian landscape is strewn with the wreckage of derelict, half-built towers, the ruins of those who began to build and were unable to finish, for thousands of people still ignore Christ's warning and undertake to follow him without first pausing to reflect on the cost of doing so. This is is one of the hardest things to pastoring. You want to know what it's like being a pastor? I know some of you, actually, let me just say that all of you think I only work one day a week, half a day at that. None of you are saved if you think that. I can just tell you right now. Well, listen, you want to know what it's like being a pastor? Well, here's what it's like. A lot of the people that you fall in love with, that you spend your life helping, turn away and say, you know what? I don't want anything to do with the Christian faith. You know how many times that's happened in my 20 years of ministry? Friends, that is painful. And Jesus is saying this, listen, don't try to bring people into salvation and then tell them about the cost that Christ is going to 
demand. You got to tell them what it means to be a Christian. You got to tell them what it means to be a disciple. You got to love Jesus more than anybody. You got to be willing to bear your cross. If you're not willing, then don't start the journey. Because half-hearted devotion to Christ is absolutely useless to him. And how gracious of Jesus to clearly lay out these conditions before commitment, as Philip Ryken said, salvation by grace is free, but following Christ is going to cost everything you've got. Why? Because it's the duty of every soul to not first find its freedom, but to find its master. Jesus is the master. saying to this crowd, I give you salvation, I freely give it, I'm going to do it for you, but it's going to let out, it's going to begin on a road that's going to require you to learn to love me more than anyone and to completely yield to me, so you better count the cost before you decide to follow. And then he gives a second parable, look at verse 31, or or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. Now listen, we overcomplicate things when we study the Bible. You ever go to uh, right now? Are you, who's, who's been apple picking this fall? Does not anybody love apples? All right. Well, you've ever been apple picking. Apparently, none of you have or never do. But you should go. And when you go, you're going to find some apples. You barely touch it, and it falls off the tree. It's ripe for the harvest. Listen, that's what these two parables are. There's nothing complicated. They're clear. They're right out there. You just barely touch them, and they fall right into your hand. Here's what Jesus is saying. Impulsively going to war is surely going to lead to your loss. And deciding to follow Christ out of emotion or out of selfish reasons or without thinking through it is going to lead to the same. It's going to lead to ruin. He's telling us, he's telling every sinner... Consider the full ramifications before you decide to be my disciple. And in order to make it even more clear, look at verse 33. Therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. You know what renounce means? It means to say goodbye. Here's what he says. Therefore, any one of you who does not say goodbye to all that he has, possessions, health, physical skills, cannot be my disciple. When you, when you use the word renounce in the Greek, when you use it of a person, it means to say goodbye. But when you use it of things, it means to renounce. So it's really saying you got to say goodbye, you got to renounce, you got to let go of everything, you got to keep your hands open, you can't grab onto anything and feel like the owner, you're just the steward. And sometimes Jesus is going to reach down and say, hey, I need this to come over to this person or this ministry or this group because they need the resources I let you borrow. Do you remember that Elisha in the Old Testament sacrificed his oxen, his career? That's what he used for his career. 
And he left it all to follow Elijah to serve the Lord. Listen, this is what it means to become a disciple. You renounce, you let go of what you had in order to follow Jesus. Do you remember that, that Paul left his position as a Pharisee, his prestige? He was an up-and-coming Pharisee. He left his career to follow Christ. He said goodbye to it all. Abraham did the same thing. Went to the land that God told him to go to. He was willing to do it with his son Isaac. Matthew did it with his tax collecting booth. Peter did it with his nets as well as Andrew, James, and John. Young David left his father's sheep. Listen, when Jesus calls you into being his disciple, he demands you let it go. He may let you stay there. Or he might divert you. Or he may divert what you own. He may take your health away for a time to teach you a lesson, to bring his glory through your life. But you've got to let it go and you leave your hands open because what he says, therefore, if any one of you does not renounce all that he has, he cannot be my disciple. It is voluntary surrender to the title deed. To all that you possess, including our own lives. Listen, it's the modern church. It's our modern church that this seems so strange to us. But it's the history of the church. The history of the church is they've always been willing to let things go. Listen to this from Acts. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their spell books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and it found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. The gospel came in. They wanted to be a disciple. They let go and renounce and say goodbye to their sinful books. And they were selling their possession, Acts 2 says, and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. This is not a call to a socialistic government. This is not socialism. This is the willingness to say, hey, I've got my fingers open, God. I'm saying goodbye to everything. I don't own the title deed. I'm just a steward. I'm just a manager. I'm your disciple. You're my Lord. You're my master. You can do whatever you want with whatever you've given me to steward. Listen, if someone claims to be in Christ, but they're not willing to surrender everything to Christ, truly and sincerely, then Jesus could hardly be clearer. You cannot be my disciple. Wait a minute, you might be asking. Is Jesus saying... That salvation is something you just have to figure out, that you've got to muster up the will to do it, that salvation's a work. Listen, the salvation is all of grace. His grace is a gift for our hearts, which we're all at war with God. Listen, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus, the Bible says this about every single one of you. You're at war with God. You're hostile to God. You're at enmity with him. Your mind is against him. And his grace, what it does is this. It did it to me when I was almost five years old. It reminded me of this when I was 18 years old. It grabbed a hold of me when I was 20 years old. Listen, his grace causes us to raise the white flag of surrender. That grace doesn't violate our wills. 
It changes our wills so that we want to give God everything. We want to say goodbye to our rights. We want to carry our cross and follow him. It's not like grace drags you to, to the throne. Grace doesn't force you to the throne. Grace comes into your heart and makes you want Jesus more than anything else. That's the power of grace. And if the Spirit of God is at work in your life, friends, listen, you've got to hear this. Nothing, nothing can stop you from making this commitment. The question is, are you willing to bear the cross? Are you willing to count the cost? Are you willing to say goodbye to everything? See, Jesus, here's what he does. And we've got to learn this. If we're going to be disciple makers, if we're going to make disciples who know how to make disciples, Jesus slows people down. We try to hurry up and get them saved. Today is the day of salvation. And then all of a sudden you hear Jonathan Edwards' sermon and the sinners in the hands of an angry God, which was remarkably effective. You're like a spider dangling over the pits of hell and God's got you there by his grace and he can pluck you out of that if you just turn to him. I mean, we think of things like that, but the truth is this. Listen, his grace loves you. And he's slowing people down. He's making them stop in their tracks. He's forcing them to count the cost. And this is how you make disciples of all nations. You slow them down. You make sure they understand the commitment they're about to make. You discern whether it is the Spirit of God moving them to do this. You make sure they come into their salvation with understanding what Christ is going to demand of them. Jesus is about to close his sermon. He's going to talk about half-hearted, unyielding followers. And this is our final point. Discipleship requires a person to have single-minded devotion to Christ. Now, I want you to look at your Bible for a second because modern Bibles, are you looking? Because I'm looking at mine right now and what they do is they have a little header just above verse 34, and it says this in my Bible, salt without taste is worthless. That's not divinely inspired. That's not from God. That's People have put that there to organize the Bible. But listen, here's what it does. It makes it look like 34 and 35 aren't part of what Jesus was saying. But that's not true. 34 and 35 are, are the closing statements of this sermon. And he says this, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. He's done. What did he just say? Well, this is what we know. Salt was a very, very valuable commodity. By the way, the word salary... In Latin means salt. So salary for a soldier was paid in salt. How do you like to be a soldier? Here's your payment. You got a bag of salt. That's how they paid soldiers. Salt was a preservative. It was very important in an age before refrigeration. They didn't have fridges. So they salted their meats. It's a purifying agent. It would kill infection. So you've got soldiers who needed salt for battle wounds. It would kill. It hurt like crazy, but it would kill infection. And salt-flavored foods, as well as salt, would cause thirst. By the way, salt is still used as a fire retardant. When I was a little boy and I worked on a farm in Derrida, New York, the central New York, 
We would bring bales of hay up into the hayloft and we would, we would scatter salt in between the layers because it was very common to have spontaneous combustion when the heat of a hayloft could get up over 130 degrees. So that salt was a fire retardant. But salt was also something even more. If you go to Leviticus 2, you find out that there was never ever an offering that was allowed to come to God without an offering of salt. Did you ever know that? Why? Well, because salt was a symbol for God's enduring faithfulness. Why? Because the composition of salt never changes. Salt does not ordinarily lose its saltiness except when improperly produced. Now listen to this. The salt to the people that Jesus was speaking to was mainly made from the evaporation of the Dead Sea, and it contained mineral compounds of gypsum. And if they they got too much of that gypsum into the salt, then after some time, the salt would no longer be salty. And when that occurred, look what Jesus says. It is good for nothing. It is thrown away. You can't throw it in the field. You can't throw it on the the compost heap. If you do, it's going to render the ground infertile. Once salt is useless, it is truly useless. Now, what's his point? Well, Matthew chapter 5 says, Jesus told his disciples that you are the salt of the earth. We are, Christian brother and sister, the salt of the earth. Now think through that a little bit. Just the way that you live. Now I want you to ask yourself these questions and let's really grapple with our own souls. Does the way that you live make people thirsty for the living water of Jesus Christ? Does your life, O salt of the earth, act like a fire retardant, bringing people out of hell and bringing them into eternal glory? Are we preserving, Christians, are we preserving godly morality in our culture? Are we stemming the infectious tide of sin? We ought to give flavor to the cities that we live in, to the towns, the workplaces, the schools, the neighborhoods, the the sports teams, the societies. Listen, wherever we are, we ought to be giving flavor. But if you're a disciple or someone who claims to be a disciple and you've got mixed and diluted motives, like that salt had mixed and diluted compounds of gypsum, if you're diluted and you've got a compound that's not of Christ, you are useless to Jesus. That's what he's saying. And every single one of them would have known exactly what he's saying. They all knew the problem was salt. You see, we've got to be loving Jesus more than anyone. We've got to be carrying our cross. We've got to be fully surrendered followers. And he says, clearly without confusion, this is the only way to be his disciple. You've got to put your hand to the plow. You've got to, you've got to count the cost before you do it. Or like Demas, you're going to desert him and run after the world. And then we're of no use and are thrown away thrown away like the dead branches of John chapter 15 that went dead because they did not stay as part of the vine of Christ. They were cut off and burned, just like the tares corrupting the harvest of wheat, which would eventually be plucked out and thrown onto the pile to be burned. Christ is looking for disciples who bear the crosses, having considered it carefully, and yes, and has said yes to him, and follow him with pure motives, single-minded 
and their allegiance to him. He simply has no use for those who will not love, bear, renounce, and devote themselves to him. Salvation is entirely a free work of grace. What Jesus preached that we just studied is not some pre-salvation work that's going to earn your forgiveness. For it's by grace you've been saved through faith. This is not of your own doing. It's the gift of God. No one has to wait until they're spiritually mature to follow Christ. Any more than a baby has to wait till they become an adult to be born. I'm going to say that one more time. This is so important. No one has to wait until they're spiritually mature to follow Christ, any more than a baby has to wait until they become an adult to be born. Jesus takes us as we are, now listen, yet he always makes sure the people knew what they were committing themselves to. And we're going to stumble, we're going to struggle, I do. We're going to ebb and we're going to flow in our passion for Christ. We're going to succeed and we're going to fail in our discipleship. There are times when we're going to lose our saltiness. We're going to lose our influence and in in the people around us because of sin in our lives. There's going to be times, listen, there's times when Denise and I love our family so much, our children so much, that it seems to dwarf our love for Jesus. But we must count the cost of the demands of Christ and be willing to meet them and by his grace grow into them. You know what I'm going to do? I'm going to take one of my favorite two verses of the Bible and I'm going to flip them around. I'm going to paraphrase it. I'm actually not paraphrasing it. I'm quoting it directly, but I'm reversing it so that you can understand it a little bit more. It is God who works in you both to will, this is heart work, and to to will and to work for his good pleasure. So work out, so work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You get that? God's doing the work. His grace is setting you free. His grace is giving you a heart that wants what he wants, that wants to work for him. So then get working. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Take those new desires that God's giving you. Cooperate. Bear your crosses. Renounce things. Let your hands open up. And love Christ more than you love anyone else and devote yourself to him with single-mindedness. Friends, have you counted the cost? Look at the very last verse of 14. Luke 14. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You know what that means? It was a common saying. It was an idiom, a Jewish idiom. It means this is important. This is so important. You've got to give me every bit of your attention. Is what Jesus says. He says to this great crowd, can you imagine 10 or 20,000 people and he's speaking to them? And he ends it by saying, listen, this is so important. This is utterly the most important thing you could possibly hear. You've got to give me your attention. Do you love me more than anyone, including your own life? Are you willing to bear your cross even if it causes you to walk to your own death? 
Are you willing to renounce everything and say goodbye to it all if I call you away from it? If you are, then come on in. Be my disciple. If you're not, then don't start the journey. Because you will fail. Fail. 